Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a special episode of Popcorn Podcast with Lee and Tim, where we talk to filmmaker Eva Orner about her powerful documentary, Burning. I'm Timmy Fland, movie buff. And I'm Lee Livingstone, entertainment journalist. And we love to talk all things movies. And before we jump into our chat with Eva Orner, let's just recap Burning, which takes an unflinching look at the 2019 and 2020 Black Summer bushfires and delves into the devastating events that unfolded across Australia during this time while shining a light on the global issue of climate change. Burning is directed by Eva Orner, who directed Chasing Asylum and Bikram, Yogi, Guru, Predator. It's produced by Amazon Studios and Kate Blanchett's Dirty Films, as well as Orna and Jonathan Scharf, with executive producers Ben Silverman and Howard T. Owens. So we had the absolute honour of chatting to Eva Orna about Burning to get her insights on why she felt compelled to make this movie, how she brought footage and interviews together in a way that balances both the political and emotional, and how she hopes people will respond to watching the confronting but important film. So, Lee, let's take a listen to our interview with Eva Orner. The greatest tragedy was that we saw it coming. Thank you so much for your time today to talk about burning. We're really happy to have you on Popcorn Podcast. 
Why did you feel you had to make this documentary? Uh, hi, thanks for having me. Oh, that's a that's a good question. I, I actually I've been living in uh, America since two thousand and four, and I was back home visiting family and friends over Christmas 2019-2020. So I kind of landed in the absolute height of the fires, mm. and I was very aware of what was happening, and I was very aware it was pretty unprecedented, and you know really the worst fires we'd ever seen. And I'd been watching from America, you know, it had been in the news here. And I remember in August seeing the fires had started burning. And I remember being in LA thinking it's winter, it's not even spring and there's fires, like what is going on? And by the time, like in October, I saw Sydney shrouded in smoke the first time, you know, landing in this sort of apocalyptic scene and being there for a month. You know, by the time we got on a flight home to LA in January, we'd been in Sydney for a week and our eyes were watering and we were coughing and so many of my friends lost homes or were really affected directly. It was, the whole thing was so shocking. And by the time I landed in LA, I was just like, I think this deserves a film. This is not normal. Yeah, absolutely. The emotions I felt while watching this, I presume will be similar to a lot of people. It would bounce between empathy and just pure rage at the situation. What did you hope to make audiences feel? Look, I think I wanted to tell a story and I think I really wanted to tell the story of what happened in the fires, but in some ways, more importantly, the history of climate change and where we are now with that in Australia, just in case there were holes people had in their knowledge or, you know, it's a pretty slam dunk argument of a bad government. And I thought, that was really important. And I guess the thing I want most is to influence people to vote with climate change as their number one voting issue, because we are at a tipping point. We're past the tipping point. This is beyond urgent. And somehow a lot of the population knows about it, engages in it, but doesn't have that kind of rage and that passion to make it their number one voting issue. And there's an election coming in the next three to six months. And I think it's really critical in Australia. So I think I wanted to inspire people to do something. Did it ultimately matter that Scott Morrison declined to be involved or did he officially decline to be involved? I mean, he was never going to talk to me. Let's face it. Yeah, his communications people declined in record time. I mean, I've had a history of making films critical of the Australian government and I made a film about five or six years ago about Australia's refugee and asylum seeker situation called Chasing Asylum. Um, and we got, you know, secret cameras into Manus and Nauru. And again, I made that film because I was so horrified by what was happening. And Scott Morrison at the time was the immigration minister. You know, he was one of the pioneers of that awful period in Australian history that's still going. There are still people on those mm-hmm. on those islands, refugees. So, you know, I knew, I mean, I don't know if he knows who I am, but his people certainly would not be fans of mine. But I wanted to give him the opportunity to speak. But at the same time, I wasn't sad or surprised. He said no. And the thing is, he's had years of opportunities to speak. And I always knew we would tell his story through archive. He's said everything he wants to say on this topic and none of it's particularly inspirational. (laughs) Did COVID railroad the momentum that climate change was building beforehand? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, yes. (laughs) I think the timing was really rough on Australia. I think that, you know, people who are from Malakuta who were in the film and other people in the community that I spent time with will tell you, they felt very forgotten when COVID hit. You know, the Malakuta were particularly devastated by the fires and also they're on the border of New South Wales and Victoria. And in the case of COVID, they were on the wrong side of the border. They're on the Victorian side. So they got slammed with like over 200 days of lockdown, having just been completely wiped out by the fires. So yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people from there, people from Cabago, a lot of people from around Australia said, and Kangaroo Island, which was devastated where we filmed, a lot of people said to me, 
we're so glad you're making this film because we feel like we've been forgotten. And I think what happened was coming out of the fires, Scott Morrison was very pressured to do something on climate change. And as we see in the film when COVID hit, it was, I think, in some ways internally, quietly, he was probably quite pleased because it was a diversion from him having to do something meaningful on climate change. And instead he came out with the gas plan which was pretty devastating to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the interview subjects that are involved in the documentary have lost and experienced so much and they're not the only ones. But how do you build that trust up with them to be able to explore their stories and share those stories? This is one of probably the only documentary I've made where I think every single person I met or spoke to wanted to be in the film. And there are a lot of wonderful people I spoke to who, you know, unfortunately, you know, you can't put everyone's story into a 90-minute film. But normally you have to spend time with people and develop trust with people and, you know, sometimes try and convince them gently. I mean, I never, I take, I understand no means no and I, I don't like to harass people in any way. I'm very respectful like that. But in this film, everyone wanted to talk. And it was like what I said before, a lot of people said, you know, they felt like they'd been forgotten, but people were angry, people were concerned, people wanted to share their stories. And it was just this incredible generosity of spirit and character where everyone I spoke to just said, I'm so glad you're doing this. And, you know, here's my story. Are you interested? And I was very, very, you know, very surprised. They were shared in such a beautiful way. And how did you find the balance between presenting the political aspects and those emotional stories? That must have been tricky. Yeah, it's a real challenge. It was it was very hard because the fires are so difficult to watch and but so important in the film. And my my you know, I give a lot of credit to my editors. I feel like a filmmaker's nothing without her editors. And we talked a lot about, you know, not overdoing the fire and you know, you don't want it to turn into sort of fire porn and just have this relentless just devastation devastation you know a film has to progress it has to be a story with characters and have to have a three-act structure and you've got to draw in the audience to what is a tough subject so you know we made a very conscious effort about every every person that's in it has to be in it for a reason not too much not sort of repetitious it has to have a forward motion so every place that I went to had a reason every person I spoke to had a reason and and I, you know, I hope that worked, but it was definitely a, it was definitely a challenge in making the film because it's a tough subject to explore. And you had to also have compassion. You know, in some funny ways, there's a couple of moments of humour as well, mostly probably at Scott Morrison's um, <laughs> expense. But, you know, you, you also need to have a... I've noticed in screenings with audiences, you know, there's times when people kind of laugh, probably out of frustration and anger, but, you know, you need to give audiences a break as well. You can't just be relentless. So that was a massive challenge because this is not an easy film to make. No, and I guess being relentless with that footage would almost desensitise people. That's exactly what we were talking about when we talked about, you know, fire porn. There's been quite a lot of fire films made. And, you know, when you see victim after victim after victim and loss and loss and loss stories of that repeated and repeated, it's not a lack of empathy or importance of sharing those stories, but you can become really desensitised and really tired from it. So Act 2 is really the brunt of the fires in the film and we tried to sort of make them a character in the film. And I think one of the things that's really a big part of the fires is the sound of the fires in the film. You know, we worked a lot on that. And a lot of people, when they talk about the fires, it's interesting, they don't talk about the flames as much. They talk about the noise, the wind and the howling. And a lot of them have yeah. sort of PTSD and are triggered by the wind. And I that was surprising to me because I, when I think of fire, I think of heat and flame and smoke. 
I don't think of wind, but that was interesting. Everyone talk about the wind. One of the less obvious aspects of it I found really surprising was the effect that it's having on the next generation, you know, babies that weren't even born yet and the placentas being like smokers' lungs. That, for me, really resonated with me and I thought, wow, because you don't think about things like that. Yeah, that's a really horrendous story. And just to people listening who haven't seen the film yet, it's about the fact that women who were pregnant during the fires, particularly in their third trimester, en masse had premature babies and they had black crumbling placentas that had to often be surgically removed and a lot of the babies were born really premature and undernourished and when you think about it it makes total sense because it you know when the fires were that bad and the smoke was that bad for like three months it's like the equivalent of smoking multiple packs of cigarettes a day so the damage that has on your body is just incredible and I remember so weird thinking about it now because it was pre-COVID at a time when masks were something not normal to see at all And I remember walking around Sydney thinking they should be giving out masks to kids and to pregnant women because surely this is not good for you. I mean, we were coughing and our eyes were watering and we were only there for Mm. a few days. And I remember talking about and saying the government should be giving out face masks to people. And then, you know, a month later, everyone around the world is wearing face masks. So it was kind of it was kind of a weird situation looking back at it. It's absolutely horrific. And what were the most challenging aspects for you as a filmmaker in selecting footage for the documentary? I know myself, especially when it came to the animals and how they were suffering, you only touched on it very briefly, thankfully, because I would have died. But it was absolutely devastating, had me in floods of tears. And I imagine that must be really difficult for you having to watch it over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I think we in some ways become desensitised. I think never to the suffering of the animals because there's something about Australian native animals that is just so iconic and you know seeing them burnt is pretty horrifying it was a little like the fire porn idea we you know we really wanted to touch on the animals because it was so important and it's also what engaged a lot of the world in watching the fires and a lot of the money that was sent to Australia was because of the animals but we we knew we could only use a very small amount I mean it really is only in the film for a couple of minutes but it's interesting Mm -hmm. in most of the articles about the film they talk about that and you would think that it's in the film for 30 minutes but it's about using a small amount of footage in the right way I mean Mm -hmm. there's a couple of moments in there that are pretty hard to watch and and it's important because you know they are some of the biggest victims of climate change and and the fires in Australia I mean the the number of animals they say three billion animals were harmed or or killed in the fires I mean that's you can't recover from that no it's shocking um the inclusion of Daisy Jeffrey though was a really powerful aspect I really enjoyed that why was it important to include someone of that age or her work I mean I think you know you have to be give some hope to people (laughs) um it can't all be doom and gloom and so people like you know, people like Tim Flannery, the climate scientist, and Greg Mullins, the career firefighter and ex-fire commissioner, uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks, the Atlassian billionaire, and also Daisy, all have elements of hope to their to their story and their plight and their journey. Daisy's wonderful. I mean, I tell people, I guess, internationally that she's like our, our Greta, <laughs> our Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Um, she was one of, not the only one, but one of the organisers of the student strike. I thought her generation is really inspiring and inspired. But having said that, I think it's really important in the film. She says, oh, please don't talk to me about the older generation telling telling me that we give them hope. You know, she's she's been hit with that so much. And when I look at it, I see this, eight, she's now 18 and in her first year of um, college or university. And I think about the last couple of years of her school was consumed by this. And I think about the last couple of years of my school when I was just like studying and having fun 
and it's it's wrong and it's our legacy to this younger generation and it's horrible that they have to deal with this and I think it's really important to acknowledge you know she talks about the fact that at 18 she's thinking about whether or not she should have children because of the legacy we've left her you know the, the ruins of our planet and I think that was really important to include because it can't just be or the young generation is going to save us. We have to take some responsibility of the legacy we've given to them. Yeah, well, she's so inspirational. Have you ever been afraid of any kind of extremist or political backlash from your films? <laughs> oh, I'm I'm pretty used to that. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it's no secret I make pretty a lot of political films and a lot of films that are critical of governments, whether it's in America or Europe or Australia. So I'm very thick-skinned about that. And I think that when I get backlash, it's fantastic because it means people are watching. And I remember when I made Chasing Asylum, which is about uh, Manus and Nauru, Andrew Bolt wrote a couple of columns about me in the film and I pinned them on my wall like a badge of pride because if he knew about the film, it meant it was crossing over and it was pissing people off. So I say bring it on. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And do you remember how your passion or interest in social justice sort of really took off? I mean, I I don't really, but I've thought about it as I've gotten older and I'm asked about it. And I, I honestly think it probably goes back to my background. My parents came to Australia in the 50s from Eastern Europe. My, we're all uh, Jew, uh, Jewish. My parents were born in 1937 in Poland, Jewish, which was, you know, a pretty terrible history period of time to be born Jewish in that place. Mm. And my family was hit really hard by the Holocaust. Three of my four grandparents were killed in the Holocaust, most of my wow. extended family. And I, I had a great childhood. You know, my parents came to Australia, had a really great life, were embraced and welcomed to this beautiful country. And I grew up having a great education, freedom, you know, just, you know, Australia is a fantastic place to grow up, particularly in the 70s and 80s when I did. But I think as I got older, I realised from a really young age, you know, my, I was, my family were different. My parents had accents. I didn't have cousins. I didn't have many grandparents. And I think I realised from a very young age that bad things happen to good people. And when you grow up with that kind of thing surrounding you, I think it. I think that's what I sort of put it back, put it down to. Maybe that had an impact on me, and maybe that made me aware that sometimes you need to fight when things are wrong. So I kind of put it down to that. But you know, that's just me playing armchair psychologist. <laughs> and your socio-political documentaries aside, what other topics interest you as a filmmaker? Um, I mean, the film I did previous to this was um, was Bikram, Yogi Guru Predator on Netflix, which is about the yoga guru sex offender. So, you know, again, it's, it's usually sort of in defence of people who have been wronged. You know, I've got a lot of projects in development and they tend to always have that kind of event to them but I've been approached by a few people with some more sort of fun projects and we all laugh about the fact that it might be nice for me to do something lighter and fun and not so political and heavy so maybe I'll do that in the future but (laughs) I tend to I mean I tend to like digging my teeth into something that's that's pretty meaty and and really fleshing out stories and you know I think I think when you're telling stories of people or places or things that have happened that are wrong I think that's I don't know it kind of inspires me that's amazing 
to wrap up, apart from protesting and making their voices heard, what do you think everyday Australians can do to try and help combat climate change and, I guess, try and prevent another tragedy like Black Summer? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things people can do. The most absolute important thing is to vote with climate change as your number one reason for voting. It shouldn't be anything else at this point. And I think that's probably the biggest message of the film. We're past the tipping point. If people want to save save the future and their planet and their kids' lives, it's time to vote climate change as the number one issue. And that's a big push for people because a lot of, you know, it's hard to get people to not just vote for the economy. You know, on a, on a more scale back, you know, individual level, you know, there's a million things you can do. You can eat less meat. You can convert to drive an electric car. You can go solar in your house. You can join community groups. You can volunteer. You can work on a state level. All of that is fantastic. There's so many ways to get involved, but honestly, it's past the point where individual action is going to help anymore. It has to come from global governments and global governments are failing us in this issue. And what people need to do is vote like their lives depend on it because they do. What a great soundbite to leave it on. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Tim, Eva Orner is just the most inspirational filmmaker I think I've ever had the pleasure of chatting to. It was a fantastic interview. Her work with Chasing Asylum and Bikram, such important subject matter, and burning is absolutely up there with uh, such an important topic, not only for Australians but for Mm. the world to sit up, listen and pay attention to. This is such an important film to watch, guys. Yep, and it's just so great to hear the passion behind the project. It's such a worthy, worthy project. Make sure you see it. Well, if you want to check it out, Burning is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video with a subscription to the service. And you can also listen to our review of this important documentary on your preferred podcast platform now. That's everything for this special episode. Guys, as always, thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time. If you enjoy our episodes, head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. While you're there, we would love you to rate us and leave a review. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Alexa, and where all good podcasts are found. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.